Before we get into our text today, and if you've read the text in advance as you were coming into the room, you know why the baskets and the nets are here. But uh, before we get into the text, uh, I want to ask uh, the members of the who worked yesterday, either driving the tractors or on the prayer team or in any way worked to help us yesterday, I want to ask you to stand if you would. If you helped to organize yesterday's prayer event, I want to ask you to stand if you would. These folks did a phenomenal job yesterday. I told, I told uh, somebody that if I did my job as well as they did theirs, I'd be a better preacher uh, because I, I've never seen more effort, more energy, and more passion uh, put into any two hours uh, than these folks did. They just gave themselves to it, and you'll see some uh, evidences of some things that were out there, some of these boards that are out in our atrium. I hope that you'll look at those because they give you a little bit of information. We had over 500 people there yesterday on a beautiful day, and God not, God not only allowed us to have a beautiful day, He allowed us to get some things in our hearts yesterday uh, through that event to see what God could do, as Marcia said so eloquently, to, to see how God could use those fields. We handed out a passport yesterday, and one of the things in that passport that it talked about, and we went very conservative with these numbers. If you take our soccer fields that we will build, if you have 20 players, two coaches, a referee, and 40 parents, that's 63 people per game. Times seven games on eight fields, that's 3,528 people every Saturday that we play soccer on those fields. On the weeks that we play baseball, if you take the 18 players on the field, two coaches per team, two parents per player per team times four field, that's 350 people on the baseball fields. Plus we have uh, t-ball and we have uh, flag football and uh, a football league that will start and cheerleading and all the other things that we're doing. The thousands of people that are going to be impacted on those fields are just absolutely phenomenal to think about. I shared with the staff this morning, this has gone beyond even what I envisioned it to be. Uh, it has become bigger than even I could imagine, and I thought I had a big vision. But uh, it has become bigger, and i tell you why. Because our lay leadership has caught the vision. Our deacon leadership has caught the vision. Over 500 people yesterday caught the vision. Many of you that were not able to come have caught the vision. You've seen what God can do. God has put in your heart what can be done when a church believes God for the supernatural and for a miracle. We're going to look at a very familiar miracle this morning. In fact, it's recorded in all four Gospels. It's probably the most famous miracle of all. I heard of a preacher who preached on this passage and said that really there was no miracle. It's just that Jesus encouraged everybody to share the lunches that they were hiding. I disagree with that interpretation. I think it's as the Bible says. There was a boy there with some loaves and fish, and he gave them to God, and God multiplied him. And it says that he fed 5,000 men. Now, that doesn't count the women and children. And so there could have been at least 15,000 to 25,000 people that were fed in this miracle. But let's just assume that there were only men there. We know that that's a wrong assumption, but let's just say he just fed 5,000 with a small lunch. It's a great miracle. It is a miracle with a purpose. 
Jesus never did a miracle for the sake of the miracle. He always did a miracle to teach a lesson. And there's a lesson that he wants us to learn in this, not only for the disciples who were there at the moment, but for us as believers today in 2005, there's a lesson that he has for us. And so I want us to begin reading in verse 34 of Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Now, let me just stop right there. We're going to see large crowds. We need to have compassion. What we need to do is ask Jesus to give us his heart for the people that we meet, to love them the way that he loves them. No, we do not love sin. We hate sin, but we love sinners. And sinners are people that Jesus died for. You are a sinner. I was a sinner, but for the grace of God, I would be a lost sinner today. But by his grace, he had compassion on me, and he came into my heart and showed me where I was a sinner and, and allowed me to understand that through his grace and his blood, I could be saved and have a relationship with him. I want to have the same kind of compassion for lost people that Jesus had. And I think that's a good prayer for us to pray, is to have that kind of feeling about lost people that Jesus had. We don't hate lost people. The church that hates lost people doesn't understand the Bible. We love lost people. And they're lost and they need to be saved. And they're lost and they need to be found. And what we're doing is because we have compassion for others. Let's go on. Verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they had found out, by the way, remember, they had to search through 5,000 people. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them to all sit by, down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Jesus has previously in this chapter sent the disciples out to preach, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. If you study the Gospels, you will understand something about Jesus' method in his ministry. Anytime Jesus gave his disciples a lecture, he always put them in a lab environment. In other words, they would just not hear it. He would expect them to go out and apply what they had heard. He didn't want them just coming to church and filling out sermon notes. He wanted them to go out in the community and act on what they had heard and to see if they had gotten the lesson. And so these disciples had gone out, and in, you back up to verse 30, and the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now think about this. They have seen Jesus perform miracles. 
They have been witnesses to miracles as they've preached and cast out demons and healed the sick. Now, in verse 33, they are given an opportunity to believe God for another miracle. They are in a position where, having learned from their past experiences, fresh off of those great meetings where they had seen God move in miraculous ways, now they were given an opportunity with this crowd of 5,000 to say, you know, if God can do that, God can do this. If God is faithful here, he will be faithful over there. They are given a position where they can build their faith up and believe God for even more. But what they got to doing was figuring out how many Happy Meals they would have to buy to feed all these people. And they said, Lord, you don't expect us to do something about this, do you? And that is the attitude of many Christians. The reason that our culture is so dark, the reason that our culture is decaying, the reason that cults and isms and schisms and everything else are infiltrating our culture is because we have thousands upon thousands of churches in America today of all denominations, of all sizes and shapes and sorts, who have basically said to Jesus about a lost world, you don't expect us to do anything about it, do you? And yes, he does. He most definitely expects us to do something about it. That's why he gave us the Great Commission. That's why he told the disciples to pray, so that when the Holy Spirit came, they would be empowered to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria. We are called to take the gospel there. Yes, he does expect us to do something about this. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to trust him, to believe him when he makes a promise to them to understand what his plan is for them, to, to get it when God says, with God, nothing is impossible. He's trying to get them to understand that. So the first thing we see is the need. We have to see the need in verses 34 through 37. These disciples were now having another test. They had been tested in going out in two by two. They had been tested in the times when they had been confronted by people who were demon-possessed or people who were sick, and now they're confronted with something that is so big they don't pass the test. God often gives us opportunities, and if we view them as problems or if we see the obstacles or if we start trying to calculate, we'll miss the blessing that God has for us. We'll miss the opportunity that God's given us. All they could see was one boy with some loaves and fish. Jesus saw a miracle that would change people's lives. And so we have to see the need, and we have a choice. And there are three that are listed there for you. I'm going to tell you up front that none of these three are options for us. Choice number one, we can sit by and do nothing. We can sit by and do nothing. We're saved. We're secure. If we die today, we're going to heaven. If Jesus comes back, we're going to be in glory with him. Who cares? We can sit by and do nothing. We can care nothing about a lost world. We can procrastinate. Verse 35, it was already quite late. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's late in the game. It is late in the game. If you read your Bible and if you read prophecy, you'll understand that there are signs all around us that this world is moving toward a culmination. It is late in the game for us to sit on the sidelines. 
It is late in the game for us to sit by and watch a world die and go to hell and never extend ourselves or expend ourselves to do what God has called us to do. We can sit by and do nothing. We now have a post-Christian world in America. We are one of the top 10 largest mission fields in the world. While America has prided itself on sending missionaries, now countries around the world are sending missionaries to America because they realize that we are a burned-over field that needs to be evangelized. And so you and I can sit by and do nothing. I don't think that's an option. I don't think we can stand before God one day and say, this was what we chose to do, and here, well done, good and faithful servant. Secondly, we can shirk our responsibilities. We can shirk our responsibilities. Verse 36, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and do something for themselves, buy it for themselves. Let somebody else do it. The problem is God hadn't given this vision to any other church. He's given it to us. God has given it to us. And if not us, who? And if not now, when? And if not here, where? God's given it to us. We cannot shirk the responsibility that God has given us. We've already seen evidence in the lives of people that have been saved through Upward Basketball this year and through our sports night on Wednesday night. We've already seen the evidence of what God can do in reaching people by the tool of recreation. Thirdly, we can hoard our resources and be materialistic. Verse 37, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread? Now here's the question they were asking. You're not expecting us to foot the bill for this, are you? And there may be somebody in this room saying, why do we have to foot the bill for this? I don't consider it footing the bill. I never considered it footing the bill to pay for my daughter's college education. It was a part of my moral responsibility as a parent. And this is a part of our moral responsibility as believers. This is an ethical and a moral issue. It is an integrity issue. To say that we believe the Word of God without apology, that it has no mixture of error in it, and to hoard for ourselves is inconsistent with the Word of God. It is inconsistent with everything this book teaches us. You see, the problem was the disciples forgot that the source for the miracle was standing right there with them. Their source and their resource was already there with them. But were they willing to trust him to provide a miracle? Were they willing to believe God? They, they were trying to figure it out. But you need to remember that one of the names for God in the Bible is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Listen, folks, God never asks us to do anything that he doesn't equip us and empower us to do it. I got an email from one of our staff wives this week, and she had a line in it that was wonderful. She said, I've been reminded, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God equips the called. He gives us the ability to do whatever it is that he calls us to do. God does not put us out on the end of a board to jump off and drown. God puts us out there so that we will take a leap of faith and move forward with what God has for us to do. Secondly, we must put the need into context and perspective. We must put the need into context and perspective. 
Every step we've taken as a church, God's been faithful to us. I've only been here for a little over 15 years of the life of this church. We're almost 50 years old. But as I've studied the history of the church, as I've listened to charter members talk about the founding days of this church, as I've talked to people who were here in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, I've learned one thing. God's always come through for this church. Any vision that God's ever given this church, any vision that God's ever given a pastor of this church has been fulfilled and accomplished. Everything we've ever done, we've either done it on time or we've paid for it before it was due. Why? Because God has equipped and empowered us to fulfill the vision, and God has called us to do things historically, and we have a 50-year track record of God's faithfulness. You see, we cannot be like the children of Israel who saw God faithfully deliver them out of Egypt and then get to the edge of the promised land and say, I know God parted the Red Sea, but I don't think he can do anything about the Jordan River. I know God killed Pharaoh, the mightiest king and the mightiest army in all the land, but I'm not sure he can do anything about the Canaanites. You see, we have a track record. God has taken us through these times to prepare us for today, and our past is testimony that we can trust God now. Because of what He has done for us in our past, we can trust Him in our present, and we are entering a new day. This is our future. This is what we will be remembered for 50 years from now. I'll not be standing in this pulpit 50 years from now when we celebrate our 100th anniversary if the Lord tarries. But I want to tell you, I want the pastor that stands in this pulpit to preach Jesus Christ unapologetically, to have coaches that coach and share Jesus unapologetically. And I want them to look back and say, you know, when they got to be 50, they didn't quit. They kept moving. They kept going. And I want them to look back and say, in our history of 100 years, 2005 was one of the defining moments, one of the great hours in the history of the people called Sherwood Baptist Church. This was a day when Jesus Christ got glory and praise because of what we did. God has called us to a new phase of ministry. We're going to accelerate paying down our debt. We're going to expend funds, not incur any more debt to build the sports complex. But we have much that we want to do. And, and when you think about it, Jesus came into a world and Jesus is before a group of people that didn't have a lot of hope. Why did we build this building? To have room for people to say there's hope for you. Why are we going out there and developing that sports complex? Because we want to say to a lost community, we have hope for you. We believe in you. You may not even believe in yourself, but we believe in you. I just knocked my fishing net off. The government didn't give them any hope. They were in bondage to Rome. They were at the mercy of Rome. Rome did not offer these people any hope. They were enslaved to Rome. The Pharisees and the scribes wanted them to clean up and be externally religious, but they didn't care about their hearts. The scribes and Pharisees didn't offer them any hope. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question that you don't even need to answer out loud. Is there anything outside of Jesus Christ and the church being the messengers of Jesus Christ that offers people hope today, lasting hope? No, there's not. We are it. If this world is going to have any hope, it's going to have it from the church that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. 
from the church that is committed to what Jesus is committed to, from the church that loves what Jesus loves, and what Jesus loves is people. He died for people. He didn't die for trees, the environment. He didn't die for... He died for people. Jesus gave his life because he loves the people that live in Worth County and Darty County and Lee County and Terrell County. He loves those people. And he wants them to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you try to tell them today, come to our church, they might not come. But if you say, I've got a place for your five-year-old, they may step out and come. And then we have an opportunity to show them a difference. The world was giving no hope, and yet into the hope, into their lives, walked the hope of the universe, Jesus Christ. Folks, I counted a privilege. I counted a privilege that God calls this church to set the pace for this community. That is not pride. That is not arrogance. That is incredible responsibility. God did not put us here to sit, soak, and sour. God put us here to sit and soak and serve and sacrifice. We are here for others. We are to be others-centered, not self-centered. We are to be diametrically opposed to the philosophies of this world. And the issue in the, in the miracle was not the food. The issue was faith. Can I tell you that the issue today is not paying down our debt and it's not building a sports complex. The issue is how much are we going to trust God to use us? Because we are being used as much as God can use us right now. You see, the question is not, should I pray God use me? The question is, am I willing to pray God make me usable? Am I willing to be a tool in your hand? Am I willing to be an instrument that you can use for your glory in this community? Am I willing to expend my life so that through my life and through my efforts, corporately joined with other people, I can do something bigger than myself? That's the question. A vision without a task is a dream. A vision without a task is a dream. A task without a vision is a drudgery. A vision without a task is a dream. A task without a vision is a drudgery. A vision and a task is the hope of the world. A vision without a task is a dream. A task without a, 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 a vision is a drudgery. And a vision and a task is the hope of the world. Now let me give you one statement. I don't even remember if it's in your notes, but you need to write it down. Poor eyes limit your sight. Poor eyes limit your sight. Poor vision limits your work. Poor eyes will limit your sight. I wear contacts. My eye doctor will tell you I'm as blind as a bat without my contacts. I, I wouldn't know if it was Garrett or somebody else sitting on the front row. If I'm just, I'm just I, I have to have them. Poor eyes limit your sight, but poor vision limits your work. I want a God-sized vision. I want to be like Caleb. 
When I'm 85 years old, if God lets me live that long, I want to ask God to give me more mountains to take. I don't want to die wallowing around in mud and self-pity. I want to die climbing, believing God for something greater than myself that is worthy of my life and my efforts. Now here we got a quote, I think it's in your notes, Peter Marshall and Mr. Jones meets the master. Give us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for. Because unless we stand for something, we will fall for anything. Paul said it this way, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Proverbs says it this way, without a vision, people perish. This was a God-ordained moment. Jesus was not caught off guard by this need. He orchestrated all of this. The sovereign God of heaven knew that there would be 5,000 men plus women and children on that hill that day. He had compassion on them. He didn't say, I can't do anything about this. He said, I'm exactly the only one that can do anything about this. Now here's where we are. We're asking God to give us at least $6 million over and above our current giving. That's over three years. Over the next three years, we're asking God to provide through this membership $6 million. 70% of that will go toward aggressively paying down our debt. 30% of that will go toward building the sports complex on a pay-as-you-go basis. The real question for us is not how much does it cost. The real question is, what does God want us to do? And that is really the only question. This is not about me getting out my calculator and trying to figure out what my resources are. This is about me getting out my Bible and getting on my knees and saying, God, what do you want me to trust you for? Because I want to tell you something, folks. We always calculate to our advantage. Listen to me carefully. If you're figuring, you will always figure in your best interest so that it doesn't cost you, really cost you, so that it's not sacrificial. But it is moving beyond the calculator to faith and saying, God, what is it? Give me the amount that you want me to trust you for, that I can give, that I can change, that I can do something about. Now, we, we currently have over $6 million in debt. If we accelerate it like we're planning to, we could pay that off in six years. Now, just think about this. If we trusted God for $8 million, we would owe, at the end of three years, less than $700,000 on our debt. Now, most people like Enjoy tell you that you can potentially raise, in a campaign, three times your annual budget. That would be 9 to $10 million dollars. So $6 million, if we're sacrificing, is really not even a sacrifice. It's just doing what all trends say that a church can do. Will we do it? I don't know. You see, I can't tell you what to give. Your wife can't tell you what to give. Your husband can't tell you what to give. Your deacon can't tell you what to give. Only God can tell you what you need to do. And then when God tells you that, the one thing you've got to ask yourself is, 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 do I know God told me, and is he pleased with what I'm doing? That's all we're asking you to do. This is a spiritual journey for us. It is bigger than dollar signs. 
It is a spiritual journey of learning to take a deeper level of commitment with God. Now, when we do this, we will position ourselves to do a number of things, and you've heard me talk about these before. Hopefully to one day be able to purchase that library across the street and turn it into a youth center. That would be 10,000 square feet for our young people. Now, young people, I'm going to say in front of the whole church what I said to you. If you don't do this, I can't go before this church and ask them to give money for you. If you keep your lunch money all the time, if you keep your allowance, if you keep your money from your job, I cannot go to this church and say, y'all spend lots of money to go over here and buy this when you didn't believe in what we were trying to do for right now. So I'm just telling you, you got a monkey on your back. And this is your, this is your responsibility, not just your mom and dad's. This is what are you going to trust God for. And by the way, if you can't trust God when you're 15, you won't trust him when you're 50. You just won't. You learn to trust him when you're young, and you build on that trust. And so it's about you learning to trust God so we can have a youth center. It's about us taking the Family Life Center of the Rock and turning it into a two-story children's building so we can double our children's space and going out on the end of the parking lot over here and building a brand-new recreation outreach center with two complete gym floors and aerobics and weights and everything else that we're going to do. And I know somebody will write to somebody and say, oh, we're just building a country club. No, we've had 89 people saved in the last seven weeks through recreation. My point is made. I make my point, and I don't apologize for it. Through recreation, we've had more than any crusade we've ever had in this church and it didn't cost us anything except electricity and labor of love I think that's a good investment I think that's a good way to expend ourselves and for anybody that criticizes I have one thing to say I like our way of doing it better than your way of not doing it Jimmy Draper taught me a long time ago, never let a loser tell you how to win. So don't let anybody that's not doing something tell you you can't do it. He said, you know, when you go out and try to hire, hire a coach, you don't go say, let's see, see if we can find a guy that's never won a game tell us how to build a winning program. No, you go out and get somebody who's a proven winner. And I want to tell you something, folks. Jesus never fails. He's proven himself historically. He's proven himself to us. And all that we want to do is on hold if we don't get this done. And so we don't want to limit what God can do here. Now let me give you this statement and then I want to move on. A church without a vision is on its way to the cemetery of insignificance. A church without a vision, it's on its way to the cemetery of insignificance it may be having the doors open they may be having programs but in the eyes of God a church without a vision is not significant it's not making a kingdom difference Helen Keller was asked is there anything worse than being blind she said yes having eyesight and no vision we are connecting with people in a lot of different ways let me tell you what's evolved through all of this as we begun to talk about this and pray about this, and as uh, we went out several years ago and bought that land out on Old Pretoria for the sports complex, and we broke ground last year on phase one, and we finished that soccer field, and that field will be used this spring, and then we'll have a soccer camp on there this July. As we began to do that, we began to ask God to show us what else we needed to do. 
we know that there's some other property around there that we need to get because we, we, God's not making any more land, by the way, if you hadn't noticed. Uh, but I do believe with all my heart that when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked down on a corner that would one day be called Southwest Georgia in a county that would one day be called Darty before anybody knew that there was a corner, knew that there was a county. And he said, one day, I'm going to give that to a church for my glory. And so we got that land very economically. We believe we're going to be able to get some others, but we have a piece of property adjacent behind our school and adjacent to the sports complex of 42, about 42.2 acres. It has on it a 4,000 square foot home, has a horse stable, has three barns. It has a tractor barn where you can pull equipment up inside. It has a fishing pond with a well that's already been dug ready to fill it. The appraised value of that property is $427,000 for the house, the barns, the land. The gentleman that owns it told us a few weeks ago that he would sell it to us for $350,000, appraised at $427,000. This past week, we asked, what if we came up with the money and we paid you at one time? What would you sell it for? And he said, I would take and make a contribution to the church of the difference. And he said, I would sell it to your church, all of it, lock, stock, and barrel, for $225,000. Ladies and gentlemen, we already have members that over their generation's pledges have pledged 100000 of that 225000 Amen. Now, God's given us even more. I think God wants us to get it. I think God's got a great opportunity for us. You say, what are we going to use that for? You know what? We're going to be building and expanding that thing for generations to come. I don't know what all we're going to use it for, but I know this. It's right there where we are. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out it would be a good investment on the part of our church. It would give us 99 acres out around our upper campus to develop for ministries. We put that pavilion out there, when we put that rock altar out there, when we put that cross out there, it will be a witness to generations to come that all of this land has been set aside for the glory of God. Amen. We're going to make a difference. We're going to make a difference in people's lives. Now, let's use what God has given us. Number three, they found a boy with five loaves and two fish. And I hope you're asking yourself the question in this parable, God, what do you want to teach me out of this and what part can I play in this? And there are three questions to ask yourself before you make a commitment, and these are very important. By the way, when God wants to do a miracle, listen very carefully. When God wants to do a miracle, He starts with what He's got. He didn't create the loaves and the fish out of thin air. He started with what He had. What did you find? Just a boy. He's got some loaves and fish. These are the questions you ask yourself before you make a commitment. You can ask, what can I afford? What can I afford? That's calculating. But it's a good calculation to make. You can ask, what can I sacrifice? What can I sacrifice? 
Now, there are some people here, and we have people from all walks of life and all income brackets. There are some people here that a dollar a week would be a sacrifice for them. We have widows that lived on, live on fixed income and have very little that they can, very little margin in their income that they can do anything with. But God notices the widow's might. Don't think that's insignificant. We have some that can give 10 a week. We have some that can give 1,000 a week. We have some that will give 10,000 a year. We have some that might give 50,000 a year. We may have somebody that gives 100, 250, 500, a million over three years. I, I don't know what anybody's going to do, but what can I sacrifice? That's the question. What is it that God wants me to do? What can I afford? But let's move to another level. What can I sacrifice? Am I willing to sacrifice something now for eternity? And you can't forget the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. And you reap later than you sow. I shared with a senior adult class this morning that the reason that we don't get our rewards when we die and go to heaven is our rewards are not finished. Paul hadn't gotten his rewards yet. Why? Because we are here today because of the influence of the Apostle Paul in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you realize that Paul, in some indirect way, gets credit on his account in heaven for every person in this room? The Apostle Paul, 2,000 years after he's dead, is still getting credited to his, his account, the souls of people. So when I die, God's not going to say, okay, let's balance up your books, cat, and let's see how much you got. Let's see if I can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because if I die 50 years from now, if I die 10 years, whenever it is, when I die, God's going to say, well, now, you know, you invested in that church over there, and you helped build that building, and, and you helped do those sports complexes, and you did all that. Uh, we're not through yet. So it's going to be until Jesus comes back before we can balance the books and see if you're going to hear, well done. Folks, let me tell you something. After we're gone, there will still be saved lives credited to our accounts by God. And that's not so we can walk around and say, look how many people I was responsible for. It's so we can take all of that and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, God, if you hadn't saved me, there would have been nothing and I'd be burning in a crisis hell today. But because you saved me, because you changed my life, and because you got a hold of my heart, and because you convicted me, I am a part of these people. I thank you, Jesus, that through me you got glory. That's the purpose of it. That's why we do it. And then the third question, what's my step of faith? What's my step of faith? You see, I believe God wants us to invest something temporary so that we can have something eternal. Money is temporary. Lives are eternal. Got a letter. I just want to read you a portion of it. We've been praying for God to speak to us about what we could do to please Him. We have a brand new boat and motor. It's been in the water only on one camping trip. We prayed about two years about buying a boat to use when we go camping. And then they talk about how much they enjoy it and some of the process they've gone through. And then the, the fourth paragraph says, As we studied together day 24 in our Generations Devotional Guide, it talked about a contribution or a sacrifice. That's when I knew it had to be a boat. I thought that's not enough, but that's not the point. You give what you have. Then I read our Sunday school lesson. 
We are so grateful that God has given us a boat so that we have something to give back to Him. We have always dedicated whatever we have to the Lord and use it for Him whenever we can. We don't consider it a sacrifice. We consider it an honor that we have a boat to give. Our prayer is that in giving back the boat to God that He will bless and multiply it to the beautiful legacy of Sherwood Church and Sherwood Sports Complex that we will be sold out to reckless abandon and winning souls to the kingdom. I thank God for the ones who came before us to provide a place for us and others to serve and to minister. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's about saying, Lord, nothing's off limits. Whatever I have is all yours anyway. You tell me, I'll do it. Number four. Will you expect God to multiply what we give? Vance Havner said, Too many times we miss so much because we live on a low level of the natural, the ordinary, and the explainable. We leave no room for God to do the exceedingly abundant thing above all that we ask or think. Little by little, Jesus broke the bread, passed out the fish. They would have thought one family, one person might have been fed but the group of 100 is fed, and then a group of 50, and then more, and then more, and then more, and then all of a sudden, everybody is fed. You know, Jesus did an interesting thing here. That's why these baskets are here. In fact, we'll use these baskets on our celebration Sunday to bring our fish and our loaves, giving what we have. Jesus said, get some baskets and go pick up the leftovers. Folks, I don't believe they were leftovers. I believe they were lessons for those disciples. I believe when Doubting Thomas got that basket and he kept putting bread in it and leftover fish in it, you realize how many baskets there were, don't you? Twelve. How many disciples? How many disciples? Twelve. One basket for every disciple that didn't think God could do it. And they walked back with baskets overflowing with what was left because you see when God does a miracle he doesn't just squeak by when God does a miracle he does exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ever hope or imagine and those disciples had to walk back to Jesus Christ who they tried to talk into sending the crowd away and say Lord I'm sorry I miscalculated I didn't believe you I wasn't willing to trust you, but here in my hands is the evidence that you are my resource and you are my source, and I don't want to doubt you again. You see, I think they were not leftovers. I think they were lessons. By the way, we have a lot of lessons here. We were landlocked when I came. We were parking on Whispering Pines. We were parking all the way down past the school. We didn't have enough parking spaces. And so we cleared some land and we made some additional parking. That still wasn't enough. And so in the early 90s, we bought five houses over here on Doncaster. And we bought those and used them for a season. And then we bought the duplexes behind them on a street behind and then a cul-de-sac behind them. We bought, I don't know, about 18 houses, 15, 18 houses. And we tore all those down and we made parking so that people could park. We had six acres. It was given to us, by the way. This church exists because one family gave the land for us to exist. 
We don't get to take any credit for that. It is accounted to their reward for giving the land. And by the way, the same family gave the land for Covenant Presbyterian and Porterfield Methodist. Every day you walk on this property, you better thank God that somebody named Mr. Haley gave the land so that you'd have a place to worship. You didn't pay for it. Somebody gave it. Somebody provided it. Why? Because in 2005, there'd need to be this land here with a church on it. And so we were landlocked. We didn't have any place to go. We started buying up that. We bought up four or five of the houses across the street here on Whispering Pines. We used them for ministries. Our school was landlocked. About the mid-90s, we put together a team of people. We began to pray about if we ought to buy the old Riverview Academy. And we first came back and said, no, we shouldn't do it. We were unanimous. Several months later, some circumstances changed, and God began to change our hearts, and, and we were unanimous that we needed to do it. Our deacons were unanimous. We went out and we bought 17 acres, all the classrooms, all the sports equipment, everything in it for $400,000. He said, boy, y'all stole it. No, God gave it to us for less than market value. See, God turned the hearts of people. Then we went out and bought those fields, and we're going to do other things. We've started investing in all kinds of ministries around the country because we're not going to be locked into what men think we can do. We're going to be locked on to what God wants us to believe Him for. And so everything that God has done, God has provided for us a lesson so that we can understand that little by little, every project has been met and everything we've done has resulted in reaching more people for Jesus Christ. Everyone. Every one of them. What allows us to expect God to multiply what we've done? And I'm going to ask the praise team and the band to come up because we're coming down toward the end. First of all, we have a vision to see it. We have a vision to see it. It's not grass, it's not dirt, it's not fields for me, it's people. I can see it. Seeing those kids play on those fields yesterday, like Marcia said, I can see it multiplied into people's lives. Secondly, we will obey and go for it. We're not going to make excuses. We're not going to wait for laggers who, who don't have a vision. We're going to obey God and we're going to go for it. Thirdly, we have the faith to believe it. We have the faith to believe it. And we have the courage to do it. We have the courage to do it. You know, before long, you're going to come up here and you're going to put a commitment card in of what you believe God wants you to do over the next three years. And you're going to put it down in this basket. And you'll think, that's not much in the scheme of things. But you're going to be like that little boy one day. That little boy, I just imagine, walked around and looked at those 12 baskets, fishing baskets. They would have been bigger than these. He looked at those 12 baskets and he saw the bread and he saw the fish that were left over and he remembered what he had given Jesus. And I just imagine that little boy, like any little boy, would have walked up and he looked in those baskets and go, That's not my bread. That's not my fish. What I brought didn't amount to that much. But listen, folks, when Jesus gets a hold of your loaves and your fish, he multiplies it. So that when he multiplies it, you don't pat yourself on the back and take credit for it. 
you look at it and say, God, only you could have done that.